Hey everybody, this is Greg, and before we get started with the podcast, I want to give a quick shout out to two of our sponsors. The first is a company that is very close to my heart, Dominar Studios. They're the makers of the Cloud Agent Suite. Their flagship product, Cloud CMA, is used by over 500,000 real estate professionals all across the country, and their customers have published over 15 million Cloud CMA reports. Also check out CloudMLX, their front-end-of-choice solution, which won Inman News' Most Innovative Technology Award and has crossed over 200,000 MLS members under site license. You can find out more at cloudagentsuite.com. Also, I'm excited to announce the Notorious VIP, a premium subscription service from Rob Hahn, also known as the Notorious ROB. Membership gives you subscriber-only content, both written and recorded, that is unavailable anywhere else. The difference between the Notorious ROB blog and the Notorious VIP is that VIP focuses on research and analysis, while the ROB blog focuses on commentary and op-ed. Notorious VIP is for those in organized real estate that want to go a few layers deeper. Please visit Notorious-ROB.com to find out more. I'll put a link to both sponsors in the show notes. Also, if any of our listeners are interested in sponsoring the Industry Relations Podcast, please drop me a line at gregrobertson at gmail.com. Hey, thanks for listening. And now, on with the show. Hey, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Industry Relations with Rob and Greg. This is your co-host, the notorious Rob Hahn. Yeah, I don't know why I'm bad at self uh, self introductions today, but Greg's laughing at me on the on the screen. So, Greg, how you doing? Hello, uh, uh, Rob. <laughs> Fuck you very much. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. <laughs> Great to see you. And Matt, you know this is amazing. Like we're 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 moving up in the world, Greg. Because real normal- estate royalty. Here we are, the OGs. That's right. Normally, it's just you and I, you and me just yapping. But today we have some real estate industry royalty with us. Uh, we have Spencer Raskoff. Obviously, we you like literally. If you're listening to, you don't know who Spencer Raskoff is. Please stop listening. This this <laughs> this podcast is not for you. And we also have Austin Allison here. Uh, we're hoping to have a great conversation about their new venture, Picasso, and then also kind of get their take on some of the you know big things that are happening uh, throughout the industry. I see them on the uh, on the screen. So welcome, gentlemen, Spencer, Austin. Are you guys there? We are. Here. Thanks, guys, for having us. This All is right. right. I just want to start off with, like, I've always been accused of running the parody account Spencer Raskoff or something that was, like, way back in the day. <laughs> oh, I remember and that. Spencer, yeah, just so you hear from me, that yeah. was not me. I have no idea who it was. <laughs> you know, there was a fake Twitter account. It's probably still around somewhere. It's, like, uh, fake Spencer or something like that, which yeah. was was pretty funny, actually. But I don't know who it was. I have a hunch that, or, you know, I've accused my wife of being the <laughs> person that ran it. She insists and she doesn't use Twitter. So I think she's probably right that it's not her, but anyway. All right. Greg, Greg noted it's, it's not you. All right. It's great. Greg. All right. Mystery solved. <laughs> well, it's still not, not solved, but it wasn't me. <laughs> All right. Well, gentlemen, obviously, we want to start by talking about your newest venture. You know, obviously, like literally everyone listening to this know you know, who you guys are, what you have accomplished in the past. But this does sort of feel a little bit like Godfather Part 3, right? You know, where it's the whole, just when you think you got out, they try to pull you back in. in. So it's not with Spencer, because Spencer, you started .LA, you know, you were, you were doing other things outside of yeah. your seemed happy. And here you are back. Like, why? Why are you yeah, back It's a good question, Rob. It's a good question. So, so yeah, look, I... I 
retired as CEO of Zillow about know, a year and a half ago or so after 16 years at Zillow. And I had no intention of doing anything else in prop tech. I was doing other things. I started a company called .LA, which is a news site that covers LA tech where I live. I was angel investing and you know, I was doing a variety of other things. But one of the things I was doing was brainstorming business ideas with other people whom I really respected. And Austin Allison was somebody who I respected enormously when he was the founder and CEO of Dotloop. Respected him so much that I went ahead and bought his company. And he became a valued part of the Zillow executive team. And Dotloop is an important part of the software stack that Zillow to this day operates. And so I, I got to work with Austin for four years at Zillow. And he left Zillow at about the same time as I did. And we started talking about a variety of business ideas, very few of which were real estate related, but they all had a common thread, which was focusing on the issue of underutilization and the fact that when assets are underutilized, they tend to be mispriced. And Austin had the insight that one of the most underutilized assets out there is second homes and second homes are actually sit empty 10 or 11 months a year. And it's because they are so underutilized that they're so expensive and therefore so inaccessible to most Americans. And so we hit upon this idea of trying to democratize access to second home ownership. And I got pulled back into the <laughs> online real estate space <laughs> and into your orbit, uh, Greg and Rob. And I'm excited to be back in the real estate industry. So what you're saying is we can blame Austin for dragging you back. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. So that's a good segue. You're for welcome, Austin. Spencer. <laughs> so Austin, maybe you can describe to our, our listeners that haven't heard about what's Picasso and what problem does it solve? Yeah, you bet. So let me answer that question by, by starting with the origin story because it really ties in closely to how I'm connected to the real estate industry. You know, I started selling real estate when I was 18, sold all through college, and that led to Dotloop and then Zillow. And about seven years ago, I had the opportunity to become a second homeowner. Prior to that, it was only a dream. I had always dreamed of owning a second home, but for all the reasons Spencer just mentioned, it was out of reach for me financially. But seven years ago, my wife, Angela, and I stretched and we bought this home in Lake Tahoe. And we'll never forget the first moment that we were sitting in that home the evening after closing. And we just felt this sense of euphoria. I mean, we had realized this dream that we had been thinking about for a long time. And that sparked the beginning of a new chapter for our lives. Lake Tahoe now, as I look back over the last seven years, Lake Tahoe is part of our lives. We have new friends there. We became part of the community. We established rituals. It's just so meaningful. And all of that enriched life that we experienced was only made possible due to the second home. Had we just been renting homes occasionally, we certainly wouldn't have developed all the rituals and had all those experiences. So from that moment forward, I recognized two things. One was the one that Spencer already alluded to, which is that second homes are very underutilized and, and inefficient. The second is that many people dream of owning second homes, but because they're so out of reach, it's, it's just a dream for most people. So that gets to the, the short answer of what Picasso is, which is Picasso is a service that empowers people to buy a share of a second home and enjoy true ownership benefits, but for much less cost and none of the hassle. So the model is most analogous to do-it-yourself co-ownership, 
Many families try to do this on their own and some do it on their own successfully, but it's very hard to do this on your own. You have to form a group of owners that want to own a house together. You have to create an LLC. You have to line up financing, which has all sorts of complexities that we can get into. And then you have to do everything. You have to design it. You have to manage it. You have to pay the bills. You have to repair the hot tub when it breaks. Like All these things are just very difficult for somebody to do on their own. And Picasso is a service that does all those things for you. Yeah. So, and, and, and what I, I love about this, and we've talked before, is that from a base level, I think when when people, when you hear advice from people, they, they tell you, spend money on experiences, right? If you're going to do something, because you can buy things and things are not going to fulfill things, but experiences are going to give you these memories and, and as you say, rituals and, and, and things you can do there. And this to me seems to be a combination, a great combination of both where you're getting this asset that is allowing you to, to, to do these experiences. And that's really guys, I mean, this. It's, just, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a really core to a lot of stuff. It's a, like I said, that asset and experience thing, I think you're, that you're, you're putting together there is really at a core level, a great thing there. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I heard the idea. I got it immediately. I've been thinking of buying a second home, but for the same reasons you're talking about, it's like, because every here in Southern California is like Spencer can allude to. In Orange County, it's like, it's either Big Bear or Palm Springs or, you know, mm-hmm. something like that, or or some something out at Havasu, right? You know, they'll, they'll have something out there, right? But I've been just worried about, you know, I know all my friends. I was out talking to my pool guy the other day. Uh, we're getting our backyard redone and he's got a place in Big Big Bear. Hey, have you heard of this service? And he's like, I mean, you know, they're talking about how our, you know, he doesn't, you know, they're saying it's not used 11 months a year. He says, oh, I wish I could use it that much. I mean, he he was saying exactly what you're saying, where he loves it up there, but he just, it's just unrealized. It's just this unrealized asset, dream, tool, whatever you want to call it. And we we have a, a really interesting product for people that already own a second home, which lets them basically sell off a portion of their second home through us and and that sort of right sizes their ownership. So you can hang on to that place. Don't sell it if you love it. Just right size your ownership. Only hang on to a quarter of it if you only use it a quarter of the time. It's an exciting idea. It's a big idea. We launched uh, only a month or two ago um, or maybe a little bit more. I don't know. It feels <laughs> in some October ways it feels one. like a long yeah. time. In some ways it feels like yesterday. But um, anyway, so far the receptivity consumers has been really, really, really strong. There's a lot of interest in it. And I think for your audience in particular, the receptivity of the industry and of agents and brokers and MLSs has also been really strong. And that was important to us also. I mean, I, you know, I spent a long time at Zillow building a reputation of the industry didn't always love everything that that we did when I was running Zillow, but I think most people in the industry at least appreciated that I was a straight shooter <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was a you know a, a decent person and you know never you know it was always ethical, et cetera. And so it's just important to Austin and me. Austin also, who built his company and his reputation in the industry, it was important that we do something that was industry friendly, which we think this very much is. I mean, we're paying agents in the transaction, a great way, Picasso, for agents to get incremental listings and incremental transactions. If you think about a real estate agent, for example, in one of these vacation destinations, they've got a database of hundreds of fence sitters, of clients that have kicked the tires on houses and have probably never bought because they could never get off the fence because they said, oh, am I really going to use it enough? And so Picasso now gives them a new product to sell to those uh, kind of latent buyers. And it's a new product to sell for the people who have, they've put into those homes, who they can now sell off a portion of those homes to right-size their ownership. So it's been well-received by agents and brokers as well. 
I'll let you jump in here, Rob. No, as I, you know, obviously I'm going to ask the obvious question then and try and get, you know, progressively less obvious, hopefully. The obvious one is, you know, a lot of folks are thinking like timeshare, right? If they want to do, like, obviously this is a different product. Like, what's the difference? Yeah, what's the so biggest, most important difference here? I'll take that one, Rob. So it's very different than a timeshare product that that people are familiar with. The two biggest differences are, First is this is true ownership as opposed to timeshares, which are generally a right to use. Meaning if you buy into say the Marriott Vacation Club, for example, what you're really buying is the right to use a certain type of hotel room for a certain period of time in a given year. In this model, it's true real property ownership. It's no different than if the four of us were to go buy a house together we would form an LLC, the LLC would own the home, and we would each own a quarter of the LLC. That is the Picasso model. Picasso doesn't retain any ownership in the property. So if you were to just, you know, the test here is like, hypothetically, snap your fingers and imagine that the whole program goes away. The question is, who owns the real estate? And in Picasso's model, the four individual owners in that use case I just described own it. That's not true of timeshare. So that's one big difference. Think of it like real property asset versus a liability. Second big difference is that these are residential single family homes. So these are not hotel or resort products. Uh, these are only homes that you could otherwise go out and buy if you were buying the whole thing. Whereas in a, in a timeshare, you can generally go rent the same hotel room, usually in the same development, uh, oftentimes for less money, which is why they can be a bit challenging to resell. All right. So less obvious to me was, okay, so the question I have is around the governance of this co-ownership, you know, because we're talking about human beings, you know, they're going to, how do you guys do dispute resolution? How do you guys do who, you know, decision-making again? So say the four of us own a quarter each, right? So we're all equal. Like who gets Christmas? You know, who gets the high season? How does that, how do you guys work that out? Yeah. So there's, there's two questions in there. Uh, one is around governance and the other is around scheduling. So I'll take them in that order. First is around governance. A big part of the value that people are signing up for is Picasso taking care of those duties and responsibilities. So when I, when I talked about Picasso early on and when Spencer was talking about it, there were two things that we were talking about. One is lower cost. That's one benefit of co-ownership. But the other benefit of Picasso's model is professional management. So we handle everything from designing the home on behalf of the owners to repairing the hot tub when it breaks to paying the bills. So when the home is professionally managed through a service like us, the owners don't have as many opportunities to dispute because when the refrigerator breaks, we don't ask the owners whether or not they want to replace it with a Samsung or an LG. We just replace the refrigerator to the design standards that the owner signed up for in the first place. So in the event that there's some sort of a major item, like let's say that the owners want to radically expand the size of their deck, for example, the way that the agreement is set up is that owners have complete control. So the owners can basically vote. And as long as there's consensus amongst the ownership group to proceed with that major improvement, then Picasso will facilitate the major improvement on their behalf. The second question was around scheduling. And this is a very common question. 
it, rightfully so, because a lot of people assume that other people, that all other people travel in the same way that they do. Like in San Francisco, a common thing that I hear for families who go up to Lake Tahoe is they'll say, well, doesn't everybody want to use the house on 4th of July? And the reason why they think that is because people often associate with other people who are like them in terms of their travel preferences, kids that are the same age, hobbies that are, are similar, and therefore their use of the home would be fairly similar. But what ends up happening with Picasso is, is the model through, by democratizing access to this asset class, it breeds a more diverse group of owners. So you end up getting one family with young kids, one family with old kids, one family with no kids, some families that prefer shoulder seasons, like my wife and I, we avoid Lake Tahoe in July, you know, like coronavirus, we want nothing to do with it, you know, uh, because we prefer less traffic and less people. But beyond that natural diversity in the ownership group, the, the other really important part of our scheduling model is we've come up with a really cool software that's available through an owner app. Every Picasso owner gets to just go request time on their calendar with as little as two days notice or as much as 24 months. And the app has a series of rules and algorithms that distribute those requests equitably to ensure that one owner can't squat on all the important holidays. Would it matter if there's like, you know, let's say, you know, four people have bought into this home and, you know, everybody goes in like, oh, I'm going to use this, I'm going to use this. But like one ends up using, just cannot use it for just two times a year. And one owner, though, is like, because nobody else is a, is a big user, there's some disparity there. But I mean, is that, yeah. I guess that's the way it is, though, right? I mean, if you're not going to use it, it's available to whoever wants to use it. And that, if that person's going to use it nine months out of the year, and you're only going to use it three days out of the year, is that cool? Uh well, yes and no. So we've solved for that is the short answer. So you actually bring up one of the many challenges associated with doing this on your own, but, but this is an example of one. It brings up a friend of mine who owns a house in Lake Tahoe with two other families and they all love it. They, and they've been doing this on their own before Picasso came around for years. But one of the challenges that, that my friend mentioned, one of the many challenges uh, that he mentioned was the fact that the other two families get to use the home more often than he does. So while he doesn't want to be out of the home, he really likes having it. He doesn't like the fact that he's basically paying a third of the bills, but the yeah. other people are getting 90% of the benefit, right? In Picasso, if that were to happen, first off, everybody's entitled to the amount of access that they purchase. So if four people buy 25% of the home and all four people want to use 25%, the system allows that to happen and ensures that it happens. But if one person doesn't have time to use it 25% of the year and the other people use it more than 25% of the year, the system recognizes that and the people who overuse just pay the nightly rate, the operating expense for the overusage and that then goes to oh, the person wow. who underutilized. Right. Interesting. Interesting. What about, I mean, going back to one of Rob's things, a little, more, a little bit more granular, it's like, are you bringing your own pillow covers? I mean, how does that all work? <laughs> uh, so, no, you're not. So, we, we handle, I mean, I guess some people could. Every owner does have their own owner's closet and owners will keep their, you know, their, their skis or a Napa. They'll keep their little wine locker and some of their clothes. So when you show up, it, it feels like your home. But in terms of linens, we handle all that. Everything's professionally maintained, you know, to a hotel level standard, very sanitized, very safe. One of the 
key distinctions from this when when you compare it to renting a home because that is the alternative for, right. for some people is either buying a whole home or renting a home but one of the benefits here is that you have a very small intimate group so if you have six or, or seven families using a home in a given year as opposed to 35 families using a home in a given year it just makes for a better experience for everybody it's less wear and tear on the home you get people that are more owner minded as opposed to to renter minded nothing against renters like i'm i'm a big fan of renting in in many circumstances but if you just look at the numbers in the data the data suggests that renters treat homes like renters and owners treat homes like owners and picasso is an owner experience yeah. so i would throw it out to i throw it to, to spencer so is Picasso a, is Airbnb a threat or somebody on your radar to what the model of, you know, the business model that you've created with Picasso, both you guys? I mean, cause it's a monster. I mean, they're going public, everything else. And, and I think that's the alternative here, right? Is, is, you know, rent, but it's not Airbnb is rent, but it's, it's not either. Right. I mean, it's a yeah, little bit. It's sort of, I mean, the difference with Airbnb from the traveler standpoint is Airbnb is really a transient experience. It's a vacation product. It's an alternative to staying in a hotel. Picasso is trying to recreate home ownership where you form traditions and you join the community and you feel like it's your place and you know your kids are excited to go eat in the same restaurants every time and play in the backyard. I mean, it, it really feels like your house because it is. I mean, it's just that you yeah. only own a quarter of it or an eighth of it. So our competitor is not really the Airbnb experience. Our competitor is, is really inertia. It's kind of doing nothing. It's the person that wishes they would go ahead or could go ahead and buy that second home, but they don't or can't. Now that having been said, we're a startup and you know the, all startups should worry about and think about big companies. And in our category, there are lots of big companies and you, know, you mentioned one and, and there are many others. So we certainly think about these other companies, but there's nobody doing exactly what Picasso is doing, at least for now. And, and therefore, our real competitor for the, from the consumer standpoint is doing nothing. And in a, in a way, it's actually quite a bit harder to have a startup where there's no direct competitor because we're trying to create a new category. We are you know, trying to create a category of single family co-ownership of vacation homes. And there are pieces of that concept that exist a little bit, you know, and you mentioned, you know, there's some similarities to timeshare. There's some similarities to Airbnb, like, but this is something a little bit different than everything that you mentioned. And in a way that is a much harder marketing and product challenge because we have to educate people that this category exists. And then we have to convince them that Picasso is the category leader in this new category that they didn't know about till four minutes ago. So I have to go back to this because when I was talking about governance dispute resolution, I mean, so imagine the four of us own a home together in Lake Tahoe, right? And I'm like, hey, guys, I really want to put in a gun cabinet. And you guys go, hell no, right? <laughs> what happens? I mean, because we're all equal owners. Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the process like, that you guys have worked out or have you run into? Rob, you are you just like go right to it, bro. That's awesome. Uh, I, I'm, I, seriously, because if it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, obviously, if it's, if it's my house. No, I, I want my voodoo temple. If I don't have my exactly, voodoo temple, right. I don't feel... <laughs> Like exactly. My religious exactly. expression or, is being or fine. So, you know, to make it a little bit more real, like say, you know, two of the four owners really want a pool table and two of the four say, no, we really hate that idea. We want it open space. How do you resolve that argument, that dispute? So unless there's enough consensus in the ownership group for, for major items, it's usually seven out of eight votes, then it doesn't happen. So hmm. for your gun cabinet, it's probably not going to get built. And right, you know, right. that is, that is one of the, 
if, if you want to look at the sacrifice that you make when you buy a Picasso when compared to a whole house, that is one of them. You know, with, with a whole house, you have 100% control and discretion over everything. And, you know, for some people, that's worth it. But for most people, it's not. In fact, most people actually prefer, yeah, while they, they might prefer the temple or the gun cabinet or the, you know, whatever, motorcycle storage or whatever it is, at the end of the day, I think what we're finding is that most people would prefer to trade that slight extra benefit in exchange for a lot more benefit in terms of cost savings and hassle reduction. I mean, this is like, this is completely effortless home ownership at a much more approachable price. And if there's a couple little things that you don't get when compared to the whole house, most people are willing to make that trade off. And then kind of a related question is, can a majority of ownership force out another owner? No, you cannot force out another owner. But the interesting thing about this model is- You can make them an offer, right? Yeah, you can make them an offer for sure. But you really don't even know the other owners if you don't want to. You know, Mm. some owners choose to remain silent and anonymous because they like the privacy associated with this and the anonymity of, of the model. But other owners, like we're finding that many owners really want to meet the other owners in the community because they're all pretty, you know, interesting people that- have similar interests, yeah. which which is which is pretty neat. So, at a minimum, you like the same place, like you all love. Yeah, Tahoe, exactly. Right? So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was just curious because I mean, you could imagine again, we're talking about human beings here, right? You know, say it's again, say it's the four of us, and it's like the three of you guys say you're a Trump voter. You know, screw you, we want you out. I mean, you know, these are human things that happen. Like, yeah. you know, are there mechanisms? Are there things like in the paperwork and the LSC documents that you guys have put into place? to say, listen, if that happens, here's how we resolve that. You know what I mean? Like, have, have you thought of that? Yeah, we've thought, we've thought of pretty much everything scenario, I'm sure every, you everything in, in, <laughs> the, in the document. But um, in terms of pushing people out, you can't, you can't force somebody out of their ownership unless they're like violating the rules. I mean, if, mm. if somebody tries to create a meth lab in the home, you know, we, we could take action. But just because somebody's a, a Trump supporter, you know, in the, the example that you used, that would not be enough to push somebody out. <laughs> I will say, though, the, the other thing that I may not be, you know, effectively communicating here is that the possibility of that scenario happening where an owner has friction with another owner just doesn't really exist in the Picasso environment because these people, in most cases, don't know each other. Mm. So, you wouldn't really have that opportunity. And that's very different than the do-it-yourself scenario where the owners do find disagreements and, and that can create tension in the relationship over time. Yeah. I know like in Maui, they have a tradition with uh, homeowners where, uh, renters, I should say, where there's, they, they always leave a little book and people who've gone to the home, they'll write a little story. That's always been like a Hawaiian tradition when you're doing that kind of stuff. And that 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 seems to be that's always a very kind of quaint type of thing. And I've, I've done a couple of things like that before. You can read other family stories and things like that, but that's very different from a homeowner thing. I'm going to make a prediction for you guys after just talking to Spencer real quick is I think you guys are, I think this is a wonderful idea and you're going to grow and you're going to do great. And I think Airbnb is going to acquire you guys. I think you have an, an excellent exit strategy here because I think they're going to look at this category that you're going to create. And I think they're going to be want to be part of that. Um, so I'm, I've got it on record here, Rob. So we've got it recorded. <laughs> We'll, we'll see how that Airbnb. long takes, okay. but we'll, okay. we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm, I'm really leaning more heavily towards CoStar acquiring them. <laughs> that's, uh, that's for no the second comment. half. Of the but I do have uh, one. 
last, uh, it's not even a question. It's something I've heard. And I just want to give you guys the ability to just respond to it, right? So when I first mentioned this whole Picasso idea to, you know, friends of mine in the industry, the, the, the most common response I get is, this is brilliant. And then the second most common response I get is, this is rich people solving rich people problems, right? We're talking about second homes when, you know, vast majority of millennials can't afford one. And I know you guys have thought about it. And I know you, the, the goal here is not that. So just want to give you guys an opportunity to, to discuss that. I understand why people think that. They're right to because there's a lot of really luxury homes on our website. And, and we're well aware of that. That being said, long term, our aspirations are very much to democratize access to second homes. It's not to help rich people buy more homes. That is happening today. You know, there's certainly people buying their third and fourth and fifth homes through Picasso. But long term, you're going to be able to buy a Picasso for $50,000 a share. You know, imagine that lake house that's just outside of wherever it is that you live. Like in Cincinnati, where I grew up, there was a lake called Lake Norris in Lake Cumberland that we always used to go to. And homes there are between three and $600,000. You can get a really nice home. And a Picasso, that's fifty to you know, $80,000 a share. And that's where we're headed. But, you know, we're, we're starting luxury largely because that's where, where most of the buyers took us. A lot of the demand that we saw right out of the gate, we had really overwhelming demand in the first month following launch. And many of the people who were most active in our pipeline were, were looking at, at higher price homes. I will say there's another dynamic that's kind of interesting here. And this is relative even at a, you know, $500,000 home as it is a 5 million. But the other interesting thing here is Picasso allows people to up-level their buying power. So somebody who may have had a half a million dollar budget now oh, wow. has effectively a $4 million budget with Picasso because they can buy an eighth of a $4 million home. So, so that also sort of artificially, not artificially, but it, it inflates the price a bit because we're empowering people to get more home than they would have otherwise been able to uh, on their own. The last thing that I would say, though, is that, you know, an, an analogy that, that we like to, I mean, many people use these analogies with companies like Uber and Airbnb, you know, because they've done such a great job at creating new categories. But if you think about the private car service, private cars existed for wealthy people prior to Uber as well. You know, if yeah, you were Uber used, enough. Uber was just black cars to start off with. I remember exactly. SF, yeah. Exactly. Like if you live in a place like New York City and you make enough money, you had a private car. People, really wealthy people do that. So the, the thought of second homes felt or of, of private transportation would have felt really out of reach to most people before Uber. We think, and, and the same is true for second homes, the, while the thought of a second home and realizing that dream may feel out of reach for a lot of people today, that is the opportunity. We think we can change that. We think we can take this, what is today a privilege that's limited to the top 1%. We think we can make this privilege a reality for the top 15 or 20% of the world. And it'll take time. You know, we have a lot to learn. It's going to require great partnership with the industry to get there at scale. But that's where we're headed. And we think, we think that's a really powerful, you know, mission to enrich people's lives in that way. No, great, great answer. I, and, and, and exactly, the examples are everywhere in tech, right? So, I mean, I think you have to start somewhere and go and, and go to that. So, I'm, you know, you started with talking about your kind of own uh, origin story, but I remember not all the details, but, uh, you know, being a product guy, I just love going into like 
corporate identity and the logos and everything else. But you had kind of an interesting origin story about the, the actual name Picasso, right? I think I think our listeners love to hear that, um, either you or Spencer. So basically, we were looking for a name that was catchy, first off, a name that could be used as a noun where you could say, I own a blank in Aspen. So that was one criteria. We also wanted something that really invoked conversation. This is a new concept that requires a little bit of conversation to really get your mind around it and understand it. So we wanted a name that, that provoked conversation. And when you say you own a Picasso in Aspen, you know, people ask questions. So that was one thing we were looking for. But the other thing was we, we just looked to a lot of inspiration. You know, n- the naming exercise is, is oftentimes not very scientific. It's, it's much more about throwing a bunch of things at the wall and trying to figure out what sticks. And for us, the things that we kept throwing against the wall related to the notion of bringing things together. And one of the things about Picasso, the artist, that really stuck out to us is that he was famous for a bunch of things, but one of the things he was most famous for was the creation of this style of art called Cubism. And I actually have some on my wall here for those of you who could see on Zoom. And Cubism is basically about bringing together all these individual elements into a collective whole to create this beautiful masterpiece. And that's what we do at Picasso. We bring you know, somewhere between four and eight families together to own a home. And once we do, this magical piece of life enriching you know, art comes to life through the Picasso ownership structure. So we thought it was really fitting from that perspective. And then the reason why we spelled it differently is because, you know, Picasso, the artist, is a pretty strong brand. And uh, we wanted this to be our own. So while it's pronounced very similar to Picasso, the artist, we spell it with an A and one S as opposed to an I and and two S's. So over time, we think that Picasso uh, can be very ownable for us as well. Well, very great. I, you know, this is, uh, as I said, a, a great idea. I think you guys are, um, it's great to hear business ideas that I think go back to a core level of like, um, of goodness there, experiences and things like that. I think that's a, uh, wonderful. So, you know, good luck for you guys. And I know that, you know, yeah. Rob's anxious to kind of also no, kind of dive no, into no. some. No, and we'll get, we'll get there. But I, yeah. I guess I, what, the last thing uh, I was sort of curious about is, are, are you guys Picasso owners? Question. Not yet. I'm trying to be. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I'm, 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 I'm looking, but no, not not yet. But I fully so intend. You, to be. you may end up with uh, Spencer and Austin as your co-owner if you, you know, <laughs> <even> know <it. laughs> or, or or other Picasso employees. You know, one of the things that we did when we started the company was we tried to make this. We, we were very focused on company culture right from the start. Something that was important at Zillow, and something I, I think is important to any company's success. And so one of the benefits of working at Picasso is that you get a discount on buying a Picasso. So we expect a lot of our employees to become Picasso owners as well. All right on. Awesome. All right. So we didn't want to let go of this opportunity to get the two of you guys on just to address, you know, briefly some of the bigger things that are happening. But I wanted to ease into that with actually something that's really relevant to Picasso, which is the urbanization, right? I mean, this is something that's been happening with COVID, the new work from home, like have you guys thought about doing this type of fraction, you know, sort of joint fractional ownership in central business districts instead of vacation second homes? Right? In other words, like if I used to work on Wall Street, right, I no longer have to go to the office all the time. You know what? I might want to own an eighth of a penthouse on Park Avenue, but because the rest of the time I'm going to be living in Florida, like has that come up at all among any of your buyer pools or things of that nature? Spencer? 
Yes, and we're and we're doing that. Um, awesome. I, I think you're right, Rob, that it's quite possible that there's a sort of digital nomad type lifestyle that a lot of people, especially if they don't have kids, are going to be interested in. So you can go to Picasso and buy a quarter of a home in San Francisco. You know, why own all of a place in San Francisco if you're going to spend a lot of time in LA or Park right. City or visiting friends in New York or whatever? And so, or if you own a home in San Francisco, sell off three quarters of it through Picasso and hang right. on to your home and only own a quarter of it. So yes, absolutely. Although we started the, uh, the company focused on second homes, we're going to allow starting almost immediately co-ownership in city centers as well. And you know, we'll see if there's product market fit for that concept. I think there will be, but but yes, I think it's an, an, a very interesting idea. So the implication there is that see that being a real trend going forward, because that is one of the biggest things that people totally. are wondering and talking about. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I, the media is talking a lot about it. I don't know. Nobody knows, but I'm not sure how big a trend it will really be. We'll see. I, I mean, I think when, when the media talks about this, people f- sometimes forget about kids <laughs> and, you know, it's, like my mom, for example, lives this type of lifestyle. She has an apartment in New York, she has an apartment in LA, and she travels a lot pre-COVID, but she's you know in her 70s and doesn't have kids at home. It's not feasible for someone like me who has three young kids, and I've got to, at least in a pre-COVID world, I've got to make sure they're in a single location to go to school. So I, I do think that the fact that we're untethered from our offices now is a permanent change post-COVID, and that's going to change a lot about residential real estate. Specifically, it will push people further from city centers, even if they still have a primary home. So there's no reason, for example, to pay a fortune to live in Santa Monica so that you're only 10 minutes from your office in Century City in LA, you know, when you're only going to that office one day a week or one day a month. But this is post-COVID. Instead, you can, for the same price, get a much bigger, better house an hour away and that hour commute isn't such a big deal because you're only going to go into the office anyway once a week or once a month. Mm-hmm. And this is why you see people moving from the Bay Area up to Napa Valley, for example, or, sorry, from San Francisco up to Napa Valley or, you know, from Manhattan out to upstate New York or, or Westchester or other surrounding areas around Manhattan. Uh, so I think that's total, that is definitely a, a reality. The digital nomad of owning multiple houses, you know, or, or uh, apartments, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Nobody knows. but we're going to certainly see a Picasso. And the, the second kind of related, the biggest thing to come out of this COVID thing uh, is actually something that your former company uh, has taken a pretty strong position on, which is digitization of everything in real estate, right? You know, I think Rich Barton was on a, I think it was either Q1 or Q2 when he just talked about all these things, all these technologies, it's always been available, right? But now because of COVID, he just saw this massive spike in acceleration with all of that. I mean, you know, you, you two gentlemen, especially you, Austin, I mean, you, you almost like well, you had a huge hand in, in making that happen with that loop. You know, like, where do you, do you guys see that really happening? And if it does, what is the implication for the industry, you know, with this 1.4 million real estate agents who are still very much like hyper local and, you know, all relationship driven and all of that? Like, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I'll run point on this one. So I think that it's real and I, I think it's here to stay. I, I think that as you mentioned, you know, Rich and many others have pointed out, a lot of the technology has been here for a long time. And and what COVID has done or the or the shifts that that came following COVID has just accelerated, radically accelerated the adoption of these technologies. And I think the radical, I mean, one of one of the things that that I found in my experience at Dot Loop is that 
the hardest part of, of getting people to change is is the getting people to change part. Like once they start, inertia. yeah, the inertia. So once they start using it, it's like, man, the wind's at your back. And in, in this case, I think the wind's at the back of the kind of digital revolution of, of residential real estate. So I, I don't see it slowing down. I think in terms of what it means, I think there will continue to be some sort of new innovations around the edge that get adopted or accelerated. So one example of that, like today, I was just signing closing documents for another Picasso that we brought online. And I'm still meeting a notary in person. Every time we we buy a new Picasso, I have to meet the notary to sign the docs to get recorded. And you know, I think those days are eventually going to go away. I think that'll that'll go online. And that's that's one of many examples. I think the adoption of virtual tours and virtual staging and anything that really enables people to fully immerse in a home without actually being there, I think those things are going to continue to be adopted and, and become very important. In terms of what it means for the count of real estate agents, which I understand is kind of what you were getting at, you know, I, I don't really know. I mean, I think that in general, you know, many people often say that that there's a lot of real estate agents, maybe more real estate agents than the industry needs. I, I don't know that I'm qualified to weigh in on how the number of real estate agents is going to change in the future. But what I do believe through my own personal experience and my experience at Dotloop is that the good agents are, are very safe. You know, I, I think what will end up happening over time is the best agents get more share of the business. And these tools, I think, just accelerate uh, that movement. Oh, for sure. I mean, to me, there could be other angles there. Uh, we were talking on another podcast about if you make things simpler to do, that mobility increases, right? So you're going from, you know, I don't know, going from 5.5 million homes a year to six to seven to whatnot. And and there could be an argument made if there's more transactions, you might need more agents too, right? So, um, totally. and if you bring tools into that, like, you know, we we're talking about Uber and everything else, if somebody just plugs into something and they have to handle their part of it, which is either driving a car or managing that transaction um, or, you know, doing the human part of it. I mean, you could bring more people into it as well. So I think the the jury's still out on that. But the virtualization is definitely one of those trends that have just been kickstarted by by all this. And you're right, exactly. I can't agree with you more about the hard thing about doing those, about people changing is (laughs) just getting to do it. And this COVID has kicked everybody in the butt to kind of do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me put you guys on the spot because we just did a podcast, uh, recorded one yesterday, and it was just all sorts of fascinating. Do you see cooperation compensation staying around 10 years from now? Oh, yeah, just dropped a bomb. Yeah, why Why wouldn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, what am I missing? <laughs> well, so the, uh, the, the guest, it was actually Jack Ryan, you know, from mm-hmm. Rex, right? And uh, his position is that the internet tends to remove middlemen. And that cooperation compensation, the practice of sellers paying buyer agents, it's just not done anywhere else in the world. And he thinks it's going to go away, whether <laughs> through the lawsuit or through like government action. Uh, Obviously, is it 20 years ago? Are we like we're relitigating this? <laughs> I, I, no, I totally disagree with that. And I mean, people have been saying this for literally for 20 years. It is deeply embedded in the U.S. culture that people want representation on both sides of an important transaction. If that's a divorce, 
you want your own divorce lawyer. If it's a mergers and acquisition transaction, you want your own M&A lawyer. You want somebody on your side, literally and figuratively, and you want someone on your side in the real estate transaction. The industry has successfully tricked buyers into believing that they are not paying for that representation. And that was a clever trick. But and And if the government has their way, that trick will go away and buyers will start to realize that there's only one person that brings a check to closing and that's the buyer. So the buyer is actually paying for both sides commission as far as I'm concerned, their own and the seller's commission. But even still, I think they're still going to want representation. Now, there might be compression on commissions potentially, but I, I absolutely do not see buy side representation going away. The, uh, you know, the only thing that would potentially make it go away is if IDX blows up. And, you know, if IDX blows up, then there's not much of a business model for buyers agents because they can't get leads on other people's listings when they're displayed mm -hmm. on their own website. But right. IDX seems pretty safe as far as I can tell. If it was going to blow up, it would have blown up by now. Go yeah, ahead, let's put a little bit to that because, you know, it, big in the news now is CoStar is acquiring HomeSnap. Mm -hmm. And the thing that uh, Andy Lawrence, I guess, is that how you pronounce Florence, it? Uh, Florence. Yeah, Florence uh, has said is that he thinks that the Zillow model is unethical because mm -hmm. he likens it to other agents putting yeah. their their sign in an agent's uh, listing. Really, what I think he's missing there is that that is IDX. Yes, thank you, thank you, Greg. I totally agree. So, I mean, I saw I saw Andy's quotes. I, I listened to the Brad Inman interview. You know, it was a big, you know, big nuclear bomb. Do you think he's just clueless he about that? Do you think he uh, just no, no, no. He's too smart. He's, he's not clueless. He's not clueless. He totally understands. The guy is is clever as a fox. He he absolutely knows what he's saying. You know, but there, there's a long line of other people that also forget that that's what IDX is. I mean, tons of people in the industry have been saying that it's uh, you know in, inappropriate for Zillow to have take buyer leads off of people's listings. I mean, I can't tell you how many traditional brokerages said that to me. And I said them a million times, look at your website. That is exactly what your <laughs> website does. They're like, well, it's different. I'm a broker. I'm like, okay, well, then don't talk to me about the ethics of having, you know, confusing the buyer by giving them buyer representation on someone else's listings. That is what your brokerage website does. That is IDX. So Greg, Andy absolutely knows that. He is intentionally omitting that fact in order- Is, is he just trying to, to stoke stones. that anger? Yes, or yes, yes, that, yes. That's yes, all yes, that's yes. about. He, yes. And it's- it might work. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, that is he is he is clever and he knows exactly what he's doing. So I'm glad you brought this up, Greg, because that was kind of where I was going next. But especially you know Andy Florence, right? I mean, you've had dealings with him. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And I mean, I competed against him, and I know him, and he's been coming for Zillow for ten years. Ten years, and, really? That's um, that's really. Maybe a little bit less, but yeah, for for a long time. I mean, this has been a long time coming, and it started in rentals. And I mean, this move was obvious to me. I mean, I think it was just a matter of time before he moved into residential. I'm sure he's been trying to buy, you know, other other. So let me ask properties. you to speculate. Why did he buy HomeSnap? Why not buy Realtor.com? Why? I'm not sure he tried. No, I'm, I bet he's trying now. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm sure he'd love to buy Realtor.com, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if he isn't trying. But I don't. I'm not sure if News Corp is a seller. But uh, yeah, that wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we woke up tomorrow and saw at least some sort of a partnership where News Corp you know, contributes Realtor.com into CoStar in exchange for some long-term partnership or some such thing. You know, this was the best, HomeSnap was the best property that he was able to buy. I'm sure he tried to buy Homes.com and, and Realtor.com and others and Mavoto and others and Redfin. It, there is another advantage, which is it has BPP, Broker Public Portal. So it gives him a... Um, 
sort of a leg up in this industry friendly positioning argument. Is he going to do you think that I mean, I think that the jury's on the industry out there of like whether this is a good thing for BPP. I mean, so far, it's not. I think that everybody's cautiously like a wait and see to otherwise this is the worst thing that could happen. I mean, well, well I, look, I'm I'm going to. Uh, the the nice thing about not being at Zillow anymore is I can I can kind of say what I want, um, and I don't have any I don't have any handlers managing this this phone call. Um, however, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question, Greg, by just saying this: Go ask players in the commercial real estate industry what they think of CoStar. And now, if you're a residential brokerage, for example, someone on the board of BPP, come back and and report back what you hear from the commercial real estate industry. I think all of a sudden you'll you'll uh, you know the answer will become obvious. So is do you think Andy Florence co-star do they have a giant impact on residential real estate or is this yes. is this kind of like Microsoft entering No 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 this is the real deal. This is this is uh this isn't just uh Inman selling clicks. Um <laughs> Well, or, or, he's gonna he's gonna oh, sell oh, this is he's the gonna, best thing brad's got in a while oh, this, is, this, is, this is the next five years for people him, are tired of talking Come about on, offers now they finally have something else to talk about yeah now brad nobody's happier than brad um but but this is the real deal this is a huge company run by a very smart very competitive management team that doesn't like to lose that's going to put massive resources into the space just like they did in rentals and i think it might take a long time but they're going to be patient and i think this is going to have an impact on the residential space so this is something that you spencer actually have like a real direct personal insight into and austin you as well the question really is this all right so these and it's a real deal it's a real threat zillow for the last 10 years has been like the dominant you know player in in residential real estate you know i say zillow speaks and then everybody reacts to it obviously i don't we don't know rich barton you know, you obviously do extremely well. And everyone is, who does know him say, do never bet against Rich. But Rich, in my mind, has never fought a true front war. Right? In other words, like when you were battling Trulia, it was Zillow versus Trulia, let's mm-hmm. go after the mm-hmm. online real estate audience. As you know, Rich has been doing this pivot into kind of the iBuyer, you know, this new Zillow 2.0. And I think from my standpoint, I'm looking at it going, now you have to do both, right? You have this iBuyer thing and you have to fight open door and now you have Andy Florence. Do you think that plays out, or is yeah? Andy's it's it's focus- a lot. To, it's a lot to handle. Well, actually, I would I would disagree with one thing you said, Rob, which is Zillow has fought a two far front war, which um, was rentals against CoStar at the same time as iBuyer against Open Door, which was the same time as regular Premier Agent, so sort of lead gen mm-hmm. on the regular core real estate business against Realtor.com. So it's actually a three front war mm-hmm. that they, in my view, won two of the three. And I mean, rentals is not over yet. We'll see, but you know, the data seems to say that that CoStar has built a very valuable business in rentals. Actually, there was big news today: the FTC suing to block the Rent Path acquisition by CoStar yeah. is yeah. is big news. Yeah. That's you know, that's the that's not good news for for Andy and CoStar. Well, let me let me ask you this, guys. I mean, what do you think about? I have this kind of theory, in a sense, that CoStar is trying to win the horse and buggy race, meaning sites like Zillow they've evolved to like to be a full service entity where they're you know you, you can go and look for homes you can you can interact with agents you can get an offer you can list your i mean you can do everything right it's starting off that way where he's trying to kind of win the old portal game in a sense you know advertise your listings on a site right 
And, and to me, I think that there's an argument to be made that consumers have moved on. They want to go to a site now like Zillow that can give them more options. Um, and he made the, the classic mistake that I know all of us on this call have made. And he said he'd never do this and he'd never, he's never going to do this <laughs> and he's never going to do that, right? Yeah. So when I saw him say that, I'm like, that also caused me to think that. But what do you, what do you think of the premise that he's fighting a battle that really doesn't exist anymore, that the industry's kind of moved on from that? He's like, he's almost trying to reinvent go back to the beginning and, and rebuild it as he sees it when 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 we moved, when the when consumers have moved on to something else sort of it, it, here's what i what i agree with is the fact that zillow has very successfully moved beyond a real estate search experience and to more of a real estate transactional experience where you can actually click a button and sign a rental lease click a button and buy a house click a button and sell a house so, but but that's still a small portion of their users. I mean, most people are still using Zillow like a real estate portal five or ten years ago, where you're searching for a home and then interacting offline mm -hmm. with an agent and seeing the home in person. And so, um, you're 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 right that CoStar's acquisition of HomeSnap is really, in some ways, fighting the the you know trying to re you know re win the portal wars, which were sort of won by Zillow. And I I do think that CoStar has the resources and the acumen to give it a shot. My money's still on Zillow, literally and figuratively, but I do think CoStar will will give it a give it a good go. You know, but you are right that they've moved on a little bit. So just to think of the auto example really quickly, like think of cars.com, true car, car gurus, like auto trader, all of these are are car search websites. And then along comes Carvana, which is a car buying website. Press a button, right. buy a car. And Carvana has a 30 something billion dollar market cap and all the other ones have like a one or $2 billion market cap. So Carvana is kind of the iBuyer is Zillow offers or open door to the, you know, the realtor.com. So, so you're right that the transaction, the full stack transaction is much more important than just the classifieds business, you know, but it's that classifieds business that attracts the audience, which lays the foundation for the transaction business. And, and again, one more thing, CoStar in rentals has built that full stack of signing a lease. And it, it's not just a search experience in rentals. It is actually also transactional. So I don't think they're going to ignore that forever. Yeah. I have no, we're running out of time. So I have one last question for Austin, because Austin, you are one of the architects of the back end you know, of, of online digital real estate. You know what I mean? Again, dot loop, like you've transformed the way things are done. What exactly is Greg Schwartz up to with Tomo? Do you know? Because it seems like a continuation of, like it's this <laughs> mysterious thing, but it's, he's talking about transforming the back end, the transaction. Well, I know, but I'll never tell Ron. Uh, <laughs> well, so I'm an investor in Tomo. He's just trying to like, you know, supercharge the attach rate. That's all he's trying to do. <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah. I'm an investor in Tomo. And I talked to Greg this morning, actually Greg Schwartz. Uh, you can answer that. What, what's he doing? Right. What's he up to? Uh, when he's ready to tell you, he'll tell you. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to launch his company here for all him. Right. The only other thing I was going to add there is I, I definitely wouldn't bet against Greg either. You know, well, of course. great guy, fantastic colleague and friend, and also an investor in Picasso. So oh, they're really excited about the work they're doing. It's like this, the, the Zillow alum, it's like the second generation. It's almost like the PayPal mafia of the, you know, of the first dot-com era. It's like, it's, it's really cool to see all you guys doing all these cool things. And uh, I know time is, uh, we're out of time, so just... Thank you guys so much for coming on. I hope and we enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully our audience have learned something and just, just getting a perspective on some of these big picture questions is I think incredibly valuable. So thank you both. And uh, I look you. forward to, uh, to, uh, 
be able to afford an eighth of a mansion in Tahoe <laughs> like soon. You know who to call. I do. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, you guys, uh, I mean, you're building something and you continue to build something very inspiring. So, I mean, it's great to see these businesses kind of come out that are really solving not only just, you know, financial things, but human things. So I think really, you know, really great job and congratulations on that guys and, and thanks again for joining us and since you're no Thank longer you out of the real estate industry should conferences ever come back it'd be great to see you both in person at some <laughs> we, event we, or we another love that you're we'll, 2024 we'll who knows thank you guys thank you thanks bye bye bye